Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine, sponsored by the Dow Health. I am Elizabeth Cullen. And I am Georgia Payton. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. Welcome back to Integrating Chinese Medicine. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Mike Armour. Dr. Mike Armour completed his honours degree in biomedicine at the University of Auckland before going on to study traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Mike is currently a senior research fellow in reproductive health at Nickham Health Research Institute, Western Sydney University, where he is currently running several, several clinical trials on endometriosis menstrual health, and complementary medicine. Mike has published over 67 peer-reviewed articles on various aspects of women's health, including medicinal cannabis and both Western and Chinese herbal medicine. Mike is also an author on several textbook chapters, including a forthcoming chapter on the use of medicinal cannabis to treat endometriosis. Mike has had significant media attention on his work, including articles in The Conversation, an SBS Insight special on endometriosis, an SBS special on herbal medicine for period pain, and over 300 pieces of international news media with an estimated readership of 80 million across over 100 countries, including Channel 7 News, ABC News, and The Guardian. Mike is heavily involved in research and treatment of endometriosis, and he was invited. He was the invited complementary medicine expert on the Endometriosis Expert Working Group for the Royal Australia and the New Zealand College of Gynecologists, otherwise known as RANSCOG, that developed the first Australian guidelines for endometriosis, released in January 2021. Mike is also a World Endometriosis Society Ambassador, Chair of Endometriosis Australia's Clinical Advisory Committee, Chair of Endometriosis Australia's Research Committee, academic lead of the Menstrual Cycle Research Network, MCRN, at Western City University and chair of the Australian Interdisciplinary Researchers in Endometriosis, AIRA. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for all the work <laughs> you've been doing in endometriosis and women's health. There's a lot there. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I realise it doesn't say that I actually completed my PhD at Western Sydney University in 2016 as well. 2016. So, um, yeah, small small oversight there. I didn't just jump from uh, acupuncture straight into kind of a, a research role. Yes, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, and what was your PhD in? So my PhD was in primary dysmenorrhea. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so I was looking at... Uh, the dosage effect of acupuncture on the treatment of primary dysmenorrhea. So that was my um, that was my kind of first interest was um, period pain more generally, and then I became more interested in endometriosis uh, and pelvic pain over time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so let's jump into what is Nikum and how did you get into research? <laughs> yeah. So um, okay. So Nikum is um, it used to stand for the National Institute of Complementary Medicine. Mm. Um, and before that, it was Complimed. So we've had a few. Oh, okay, a few um, names. 
Yeah, we've had a few rebrands over the time. Mm. Um, so Nikim is, uh, full name is Nikim Health Research Institute. We're our own uh, research institute within the university. So we have our own kind of um, research institutes tend to be, oops, you know, the name, as the name implies, we're research focused. So we don't do a lot of teaching. Um, we mostly focus on research and kind of, you know, um, HDR candidates, so PhDs and, and masters and things like that. So, mm, okay. And we're um, the Australia's, as far as I know, we're still Australia's only era five ranked. So we're the high, we we're the highest ranked complementary medicine research institute in Australia and one of the leaders in the world in terms of uh, you know what we do. Um, and we cover a whole lot of different stuff at Nickham, everything from preclinical. So we've got labs here um, looking at everything from kind of like anti cancer. To, um, properties for Australian native fruits, for example. Oh, cool, um, yeah. We have a, a fully operational medicinal cannabis lab. Yeah. Um, we also have a lot of uh, obviously clinical work that we do as well, so clinical trials. Um, so from apart from the work that I do, we've also got you know um, some of our fantastic HDR, so our PhD candidates doing work in. Uh, naturopathy for diminished ovarian reserve. We've got mm. clinical trials on acupuncture for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, we have um, trials looking at cancer. Uh, so lots and lots of, like quite a broad range for a relatively small, and you know, there's, I think there's probably about 15 academic staff at Nikon. So we, we punch well above our weight, I think, um, in this space. Most um, definitely. Sounds incredible. And how did I get into research? Well, my original training was, uh, I guess, as a biomedical scientist. So I'd always enjoyed the research component. Um, and I really did enjoy, um, you know, so my first undergrad degree was in um, bio, uh, cardiovascular biophysics, um, which sounds much smarter than it actually is. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the research component, but it was mostly preclinical. So I was, I was looking at heart failure. Uh, some causes of heart failure and we were using a mouse model and I did enjoy the research aspect but I didn't enjoy uh, the animal aspect yeah. um, really you know um, obviously I didn't enjoy the fact that I wasn't really able to interact with people and you know while it was incredibly valuable work um, it just it felt very disconnected from the real world for me so um, when I started studying acupuncture I was very fortunate that one of my um, tutors was uh, an emergency medicine doctor and oh, wow. he basically pointed me in the direction that there was some research um, roles going at um, a hospital in New Zealand in Auckland mm. and so I worked for the whole time I was doing my studies of acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine I was also working as a as a researcher in the emergency department and then when I went into when I finished my acupuncture um degree I just you know I'd always it just stayed with me I was always interested in, in research and then when I got an opportunity to pursue a PhD it just seemed like a really natural progression for me mm. Wonderful. And so, Mike, we wanted to talk about clinical trials and we wanted to ask why it's difficult to measure acupuncture yeah, sure. So, um, you know, traditionally randomized controlled trials really have been ideally suited to pharmaceuticals. Mm. Um, and it's because with a randomized controlled trial, what you're really trying to do is keep your, um, your groups the same, except for the single thing that you are um, changing between them, which is the intervention. So, you know, if you, um, 
for example, if, if you're doing a pharmaceutical clinical trial, you tend to, you know, you might have a doctor who screens the participant for a particular disease, checks the inclusion exclusion criteria, and then, you know, they may then that they might be entered into the study, and then someone, you know, may they might get dispensed um, their medication or, or an identical placebo and. Mm. You know, obviously they're blinded usually, well, almost always, hopefully, yeah. um, blinded. And the doctor is also blinded because the pill, you know, might be a little pink pill and the placebo might be a little pink pill. Mm. And the only difference between the placebo and the active is the active ingredient. So when, you know, if there are changes, we can say, okay, it's the active ingredient in the medicine which is causing those changes because otherwise everything else is pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, but acupuncture is what we call it. Uh, and so is Chinese herbal medicine and, and most kind of um, complementary therapies as well, are what we call complex interventions. So they don't really just have a single component that works uh, as the active and the others would be, you know, what we call non-specific, um, you know, it used to be called placebo um, uh, kind of placebo effects, but we tend to call them non-specific now because there's, there's a whole lot of different things that come into that. Um, but if you imagine like the typical part of an acupuncture treatment would be, um, you know, you'd have palpation, you know, you might feel mm. the pulse, look at the tongue, you might, um, you generally take like quite a complex history, um, you know, and then we'd often re-narrate, you know, we'd then give an explanation, um, you know, within whatever theoretical framework we're working in. So in China, you know, if we're using a TCM framework, we might talk about you know the zhang fu and how you know what's going on you know if someone has period pain for example we might say well you have liver chi stagnation with some blood stasis um so we kind of re-explain symptoms in a different way mm. um and even the treatment is you know um it's not standardized so you know yeah. rather than giving a single pill you yeah. know um obviously a differential diagnosis is a key part of tcm theory mm. and also on top of that, there's other components like diet and lifestyle advice, which, you know, most practitioners would consider to be characteristic components of, of acupuncture, you know, so um, they're grounded in TCM theory, you know, they're, we think that they're responsible for some long-term outcomes, you know, so they're not placebo or, or unimportant components. And then we have things like moxa, you know, you might also be given some, you know, qigong exercises or some tai chi. So there's so many different components and it's not just a single part of those, you know, which, um, which contributes to the, the outcome. So it does mean it's, it's much harder to test acupuncture alone because there's so many other factors that, that come into that. And, and a key part of that as well is what we call the therapeutic alliance. So, you know, often um, people will, you know, uh, have quite a strong engagement with their practitioner as well, you know, mm -hmm. so they might get, um, for example, if they come to see an acupuncturist, they might have a 60 minute appointment compared to say 10 minutes with their GP. It's true, um, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, there's so many different factors. It just becomes a lot more tricky um, to say, oh, it's just been, you know, this particular needle or this particular point is responsible for the outcome. So, and it's the same for other, you know, this is not just acupuncture physiotherapy and surgery and you know psychological interventions like psychotherapy all have these same challenges pretty much anything which it isn't a simple um kind of pharmaceutical intervention struggles with you know um, randomized controlled trials 
be okay. a perfect fit. Okay. So after beginning your research on acupuncture, Mike, did the results surprise you? Um, I think, you know, what, what really got me interested in, I guess, acupuncture for women's health was when I was a student, um, I'm sure it's the same for students still, but, you know, you, you ask all, of, and whether it's, you know, medical students or acupuncture students, you have to ask all of the questions, you know, mm, not yeah. like when you're a more experienced practitioner, you can skip over ones you think aren't relevant. So I, I remember, you know, we had people coming in for a sprained ankle, for example, or a headache, and we'd always ask about their menstrual cycle. Mm. Um, and inevitably, each time they would say, oh, my, my periods are normal. And then, you know, we do the questioning about the pain and the length and the heaviness and clots. And, and, and more often than not, I would say they weren't normal, you know, um, yes. or they were, I suppose you could say normal in the sense that it was very common, but it's not uh, necessarily what we would consider normal in Chinese medicine. Yeah. Um, and I was just, that really piqued my interest from the beginning is why you know, is a, a lot of pain and dysfunction, um, but it's so normalized. Mm -hmm. That's how I kind of got interested in, in the research. Um, but I think what interests me the most about acupuncture research is, um, you know, the challenges to do the research properly are significant, but when we overcome them um, or, you know, manage them as best we can, I think we get some really interesting evidence of, of effectiveness. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the issues that has been there, which prevents us from looking at it more is just a lack of funding. Um, yeah. So um, if you can imagine, you know, obviously if it's a, if it's a, any kind of um, herbal or drug intervention, there's usually someone who's made it, uh, you know, and so they have a vested interest in wanting to find out if it works. Um, so it makes sense for them to financially support, you know, someone to do research on that. But Really, for acupuncture, it's who benefits financially. Mm. Well, it's certainly not a needle manufacturer because of you know there's nothing. <laughs> true, true, true. You know? um, so you know they, they're probably not inclined to give us half a million dollars to do research. That's true. Yeah. You know their needles are just going to be the the same as someone else's needles. You know you might say, well, mine are more painless or you know they're better quality, but mm. you you know. Um, there's not really much incentive for that. And so that's where it becomes really difficult um, is that most of the time to do acupuncture research, we have to get funding from, you know, um, in Australia, like the NHMRC, for example. And that's a, that's a pretty significant challenge, um, you know, to, to be able to uh, get that kind of funding. So it does mean a lot of the studies are done, you know, during PhDs or other, you know, mm -hmm. places where we can do it. Um, and, you know, that's very, very difficult to do large, fully powered trials during that time. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge for, uh, for acupuncture research at the moment. Do you find it difficult, Mike, to find candidates? Um, it depends. People... I, I didn't for the, the primary dysmenorrhea study. And we, okay. we also yeah. had, we've also done a, a clinical, uh, we also did a clinical trial on acupuncture for endometriosis. And in both cases, we didn't, we found people were very, very keen to engage. Mm. Yeah, um, okay. I think post-COVID, or I don't really want to say post-COVID because I, I think that implies that kind of it's all over. But I guess since kind of 20, early 2020, um, it has been significantly more challenging to get people to engage okay. um, with research. And Mike, where do you usually find your candidates? 
I guess it depends on what we're looking for, but mostly social media. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that especially for primary dysmenorrhea, it's very, very hard to find them anywhere else apart from social media because, because period pain is so common, um, even if it's quite severe, there's not really any, you know, um, period pain support groups or anything like that. No, and so, mm. you know, it's harder to, to target those people. Mm. Um, for endometriosis, obviously, we have groups like Endometriosis Australia and mm. Quindo and EndoHelp and, um, and others which help us, you know, recruit by putting it out our call for participants. But mostly social media, I think, is, um, is, is you know, probably 90 plus percent of, of where our yeah, okay. recruits come from. Okay. And so, Mike, can you please explain why the dose of acupuncture is important for therapeutic benefit? Yeah, sure. So I think if we think of acupuncture as um, in a little bit more of a biomedical way, um, you know, that obviously the number of needles, the duration of the retention and the number of times you do the treatment are likely to make some kind of difference. Um, you know, I, I always liken it to something like, you know, doing acupuncture once every couple of weeks, you know, and then saying it doesn't work is a bit like giving someone, you know, a Panadol for a headache. Mm. And, then, and you can have one Panadol and then in about two weeks you can have another one. Um, <laughs> so, so it's about it's about delivering, you know, a, the maximum therapeutic benefit. So, and we know from from my research and, and also others, there's definitely this this kind of some kind of dose response there, which would make sense if we are having a true physiological effect. You know that you will have the number of times you deliver acupuncture, the, how long the needles are retained for. They obviously have an important part of you know kind of physiological. Um, components you know on top of that you've probably got things like the point selection which is much much harder to measure the effect of those mm. at the moment mm. um, but so you know and this is a challenge that I know most of us have in in clinical practices how do we deliver the best benefit for people um, while respecting the fact that obviously it costs money and time um, yeah, it's not unfortunately like we we're in China when we got to experience in the hospital setting where someone can come daily for a set amount exactly. of days. Like culturally, it is it is different here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I remember doing some focus groups um, with some practitioners um, for quite a few years ago. Now we never ended up publishing it, unfortunately. Um, but we looked at. I was chatting to people who were trained in Australia and New Zealand, and then also a group which was trained in China, but now lived in Australia and New Zealand. Okay. And they were basically saying, you know, it was a real struggle for them when they, in China, they are doctors, you know, they have, mm. you know, they, mm. someone, you need to come every day for two weeks or three weeks and the, the person comes, you know, and in Australia, they said, well, you need to come once a week for, you know, three months or something. And the person's like, well, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. Yeah. Um, and so it is a it is a struggle, and obviously that's one of the major issues with trying to look at the Chinese research research undertaken in China mm. and trying to apply that in a Western context. You know, so we might see some you know looking at acupuncture for depression, for example. We looked at this in um, a meta analysis a few years ago, and we found that um, the outcomes for China were much better than those when then undertaken in the west okay and yeah 
there's obviously a couple of explanations for this. Um, there could be more cultural expectation for benefit. Yeah. Um, there could be the fact that, um, you know, the, the data, like the experimental procedures weren't as good in China. So that, you know, can mean better outcomes. You know, generally, the more you tend to control things, um, the smaller the effects we see. But what we looked at is the, a simple explanation was actually the number of treatments. Um, we found quite a strong relationship between the more treatments which were delivered, whether it was in China or in the West, better therapeutic outcomes, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. why it's really difficult if you take a study from China which says acupuncture really helps depression. But when you read it, they're like, well, they actually saw someone five times a week yeah. for... 10 weeks you know mm, yeah yeah and how do we translate that into a australian or new zealand or your more generally mm. western kind of context yeah. um and like you say the the problems are financial obviously you know where i think it's very very affordable in china just a few dollars for yeah, this kind it, of treat it's very different versus you know i don't know what I mean, I'd say saying 80 or $90 a treatment is probably not unrealistic, right, in Australia mm, mm. for most practitioners. Mm. Um, but also on top of it, it's this, the time factor for um, for patients. Mm. It's culturally acceptable, like you say, in China to go every day. But if you said to your boss, here, I'm just heading off my acupuncture. And by the way, I'm going to be doing that every day. Uh, <laughs> It'll months. be my lunch break. Yeah, yeah. every day. <laughs> Um, but also the other thing which has come up, funnily enough, and I'm not sure if you find this in your clinic, but imagine, you know, all of your patients, if they suddenly turned around and said, you know what, money and time is no issue. I'm going to come in and I'm going to see you three or four times a week. Mm. Um, could you fit them in? Probably not. No. no. Oh, I think you'd have to change the setup of the treatment. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. think, like, say, for example, Mike, if we need to see someone, say, um, twice a week or if, say, for example, in an IVF cycle, we're lucky that we have shared care. So yeah. what we what we can do is because we've got the four TCM practitioners here is that we work together. We so do. that works well, but I don't think we'd be able to get someone in three to four times a week. Yeah, maybe one person but not like yeah. half a dozen or a dozen patients. No. Yeah, no. yeah, that would be. Oh, and, and that's exactly it. And you know, yeah, obviously, yeah. your yeah. clinic is probably, um, you know, you you're probably an exception to the rule in many ways that you've got a, a practice with multiple practitioners. You know, a lot of acupuncturists, are, in my experience, are kind of solo practitioners. Mm. You know, they might have a clinic, one room, they might have two rooms at a push. Um, you know, how are you going to see? You know, if, if all forty of the patients you normally see each it's week impossible. are going to come yes. every day. Yeah. Also, how do we see new people, you know? Yeah, um, yeah that's yeah. it. And so how do you I have enough that's... time for education? <laughs> yeah. Like, if yeah. you do, yeah, work in that model. I yeah. remember, yeah. Mike, um, the explanation that you gave um, with the research with, with what you did with Carolyn Smith with IVF and how you brought in that model or that thought um, of dose and acupuncture. And patients are so receptive to that. Because as you're saying with the Panadol, like if you explain it in that kind of dosage form, it, it makes sense for them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah. that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge both for patients and, you know, practitioners. Um, it is. And I wish I had a really good answer, you know, but it is, it is a challenge, you know, um, for them to find the time and finances, you know, and also, you know, how do we fit people in? Yeah, um, yeah. So it is definitely important, but... The way our clinics are set up here, perhaps it's not the easiest way to kind of 
Um, no, it's yeah. not. And the care yeah. that you want to provide, you know, you don't you don't want to shorten that. Either. No. And like you know, we have this conversation about having a community clinic for endometriosis, but how would that how would that look? Because you'd want to be doing all of the lifestyle advice. So, yeah. Mike, is there any way that you see that it could change in Australia? So, I mean, I think that um, like Liz just mentioned, you know, that I, I'm a big fan of these idea of community clinics. Mm. I don't think they're mm. perfect. Um, you know, I think we also need to, uh, you know, and I, I have, you know, with the disclaimer, I haven't been and practiced in China. So I'm only taking it on, you know, what I've heard, but yeah. I think, probably most people who have acupuncture in Australia would be quite shocked to get acupuncture in yes. China. Very um, different. Very different. So I think it's, you know, what I've been told is often you might be sitting in a chair with, you know, 10 or 20 other people in a room, yeah. you know, yes. someone will come around the doctor, presumably you might get a very short consultation. They might put the needles in or they might have a, like a nurse put the needles in. Yeah. Um, and might sit there for however long until someone comes back and, and takes it. them out. So I think for most people who are used to coming into a, you know, a lovely clinic like yours and are probably getting, you know, an hour long or 45 minutes to an hour long session and they're getting asked all about, you know, their history and their life and, you know, they're lying down and it's relaxing and you might have some, you know, nice smells and, you know, mm. some meditations on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, you know, dim lights and, you know, an yeah. eye mask or something. So yeah. I think it's, um, it's very different, yeah. you know, very very different but yeah. I, what i in, in new zealand i was very fortunately um uh, me and and two of my very good friends owned a clinic called the body workshop they still own it okay um and we it was in an old anytime fitness mm. um so we actually had i think about 12 or 13 rooms um wow. and they were actually just done by curtains mm -hmm. so there were partitions put in with curtains around kind of a central area and for a community clinic, we would just, um, I think I used to run one on a Tuesday night and a Saturday, and we would just basically get people to come in every 15 minutes. I'd have some students helping me go around, um, do a, a diagnosis, um, you know, put the needles in, the students might do some moxa, um, I'd go to the next person. It, it actually worked quite well. And then we changed it slightly, which I think improved it even more, which was, you know, we had, everyone had to come for a private you know, like a, a normal appointment first. Okay. We could take a full history. Um, and then after that, they could come to the community clinic. Oh, they still got a proper, because trying to take, especially, you know, we had people coming with things like, you know, IVF or fertility issues. And it just wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't fair on them, you know, to try and take a full history in like five or 10 minutes. Um, mm. So this worked out well. And I think, been a while since I ran the clinic, but I think we charged maybe ten or fifteen dollars, yeah. you know, per session. So um, much and more so accessible. Just, yeah, yeah, and I I loved that. That was actually my favourite part of the week because it was really, um, you know, certainly I wouldn't treat everything that way, but you know, we had a lot of people coming with primary dysmenorrhea or polycystic ovarian syndrome, some with endometriosis, and they were able to come and get treatment twice a week, and it, and it cost them like twenty bucks. Yeah. Um, and so we had really, really good um, results with that. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I'd love to see something like that up again. But yeah, I just, uh, not, not in a position to do that with my um, current kind of academic workload. Yeah. Yes. I um, <laughs> I thought it'd be really cool, Mike, if with the budget that was given to make the pelvic pain clinics, imagine if they did make acupuncture clinics with that. 
as well. Yeah. Know. Well, look, I mean, those, um, we've actually just written uh, an article. I'll send it to you. It hasn't been, it, it's just been published. Okay. Um, and we, it's me and, and um, the, the AIR team. So those are the Australasian Interdisciplinary Research and the Endometriosis. It's our first paper together. And we're actually looking at some of the shortcomings from the National Action Plan. Okay. Um, one of the things we do talk about is the importance of these multi or interdisciplinary centres of expertise. Mm. Um, this is the, the, the clinics which have been announced by the government. The difficulty there is that the press release that was given mm. that's all of the information any of us have got so even okay. um I, i've been asked about this before and the answer is i don't know what those clinics are going to look like that's literally all the information that's we've been, been given. given okay um yeah. so how are you know are they going to be true centers of expertise mm. where you'll have you know gynecological mm. surgeons and pelvic physios and bowel yeah. surgeons and you know yeah. acupuncturists and dietitians or nutritionists and you know which dream. would be fantastic or are they going to be something different mm, um, okay so it's hard to know because we just don't know what uh, mm. we don't have any more details but i think that there's definitely enough evidence out there now for acupuncture to suggest that acupuncture should definitely be part of those clinics definitely um, yeah yeah. So as we're talking about endometriosis, the conversation continues in all areas of endo, including diagnosis, treatment and access to pelvic pain care and complementary medicine manager management. What current research areas are you looking at for endometriosis at the moment, Mike? Um, so I'm still we're still um, recruiting for our herbal medicine trial. Um, OK. So we are, that's, um, we have a modified version of Waitzer Fooling One. Great, and I yeah. apologise for my pronunciation to anyone who's a native speaker. Um, <laughs> and so we have that, we're still recruiting for that. That's been very interesting. That's been a real challenge. Has it? Um, oh, really? Yeah, not more oh. than, so we've been, we need 90 people with endometriosis. We've been recruiting for two and a half years and we've only got 60. Um, so it's been really okay. Um, we can put that one back on our page again. I think we'll we put have. it on our socials, definitely. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Look, and, um, it can all be done remotely. So, you know, during COVID, we completely pivoted. Yeah. Um, centers done remotely. The only thing people need to do in person is they need to go and get a blood test. Okay. Um, at the beginning and the end, um, just because we're monitoring liver and kidney function, obviously, because we're yeah. getting you to take something. Um, so, you know, for safety reasons, we need to make sure that there's no changes in, in your liver or kidney function. But apart from that, everything's done online. We courier the, you know, the treatment out to you. Okay. Um, but yeah, it has been a challenge. And I, I think this is, you know, something where perhaps people are just fatigued in general with COVID. Um, yeah. It's certainly been a surprise to me um, because when, when we designed the trial and unfortunately for me, when we budgeted for it, we expected that it would be over quite soon. Okay. Um, so it's been... Yeah, it's, it's been an educational lesson about needing to make sure we build in, you know, contingency plans. Mm. Um, some of the research which is coming up um, that we're looking at, so I'm part of a, um, a team which got an MRFF grant, so Medical Research Futures Fund grant, um, and we'll be looking at... Um, looking at differences in diagnosis outcomes, you know, from laparoscopy versus other diagnosis like um, ultrasound. Okay. Um, we're also looking at some long, and we're talking about long-term outcomes here. Uh, so this project's running over the next four years. Um, 
And that's looking at things like, you know, after surgery, you know, or after medical treatment, what are the, the outcomes, you know, for pain and, and dysfunction over quite some time. Um, and so this is a, just information that we just don't have at the moment. Um, so that's being led by Professor Jason Abbott um, okay. from UNFW. Yeah. Um, and so, but my personal work, so we've got a few things coming up. Um, so we have, um, we're, we're putting in for a couple of grants. So it's always difficult to say what's exactly going to happen, mm -hmm. but we have um, one that we're hoping that we'll be running in Victoria, um, which is looking at medicinal cannabis for reducing presentations to the emergency department for pain. Oh, wow. and, okay. and that's in, in people with endometriosis. Mm -hmm. um, we also have, so most of my trials coming up are around medicinal cannabis. Um, yeah. Because we do think that that's a really promising area of symptom management. Okay. Uh, Super interesting. And so we have another study that my PhD candidate, uh, Justin Sinclair, will be doing, we're hoping to start next year in New South Wales. Um, and again, we're looking at quite a long treatment. I think um, we've decided that it'll be six months of um, various types of medicinal cannabis. So we'll be looking at CBD only versus a CBD plus THC mm -hmm. um, blend um, and looking at safety and obviously the effectiveness okay. of that okay. yeah. um, and then we also are hoping um, that we do have some other projects in the pipeline but we're still waiting for those to be signed off on so can't really talk about those until okay. that's been done but we definitely we have some interesting um, novel delivery methods for medicinal cannabis, which we're hoping will be really beneficial for people with pelvic pain okay, and endometriosis. Okay. So those are my kind of my main things over the next kind of 18 to 24 months. Yeah, it sounds super interesting. Yeah. With um with the Gwazi feeling one, Mike, are you using granules or pills? Uh so it's it's capsules. Uh, yeah, okay. so they're encapsulated. So it's the um, it's Metagenics um, Gynoclear formula. Oh, so, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's encapsulated. Um, it, so it's their, their version. So they've sponsored the, the trial. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, so it yeah. was something that I've been wanting to do. I actually approached them because I used to use that formula a lot in clinic, mm. um, especially for people who didn't want to take granules. Um, yeah. And I always found it was quite uh, you know, it worked quite well. Um, so I was really interested to see, you know, how, you know, can we look at, you know, how effective it is when we compare it with a, you know, a placebo. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. And so we touched base a little bit on this before, Mike, but what is the national plan for endometriosis? Yeah. So the, the, na the national action plan for endometriosis or NAPE, because it's a bit of a mouthful yeah. is um, it was, developed uh, by a team and released in 2018 um, and it covers off some priority areas um, which is around kind of education diagnosis and treatment um, and so this was originally kind of a, a, a scaffold for you know areas that needed to be improved um, so the education was both education of um, people uh, in the community so you know improving understanding and awareness of things like, you know, endometriosis and period pain, and also education for doctors, GPs, nurses. So there's a whole kind of suite of, of training. Um, there's been, um, you know, uh, a lot of uh, attention on kind of diagnosis, mm. improving diagnosis to reduce the diagnostic delay. Um, 
those are the ones that I kind of focus on in, in the NAEP. Um, but there's, uh, there's quite a few, can't remember how many key action points there are, maybe nine. Okay. Um, so that's, that's kind of the government's roadmap, I guess, for, um, for what they want to do. And then it's mm -hmm. been about how is this rolled out and implemented. Okay. So how close are we, do you think, to finding another form of diagnosis other than a laparoscopy and a cure for endo? So with that recent budget of $9 million, um, is it a significant amount for progression in research? No, not really. Not really. Yeah. Um, so, you know, our research has shown that endometriosis costs the, the, the kind of the country, so people personally, the economy, the healthcare system, about $24 million a day um, in Australia. What? Yeah, so $9.7 billion a year it, it equals about 20 to $24 million a day, depending on wow. how um, severe people's symptoms are. Yeah, so okay. $9 million is, is yeah. half a day basically um, it sounds if good that, it yeah. sounds good when they say nine million dollars but when you're actually in research it's like oh that's nothing, nothing. it's not and then the thing is is that you know people unfortunately nine million dollars does sound like a lot but that's yeah. really it's probably six six clinical trials mm. you know um it's nine million um it's expensive to run clinical trials yeah. Um, yeah. it takes a long time um so yeah look i think that a cure, it's, that's not, you know, I, I want to say uh, it's not my area of expertise. Mm, okay. no. um, but I think, unfortunately, we're probably a way away. Yeah, um, yeah. And the reason for that is we don't actually know what causes it. So mm. it would be unusual to find a cure when we're still not sure what causes yeah, endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And also, more importantly, is there a single cause? And it, that's yeah. probably not true. Yes. You know, um, and it's probably multifactorial. So, you know, I think that uh, we need to understand first, you know, for example, some questions kind of are, you know, um, is endometriosis progressive? You know, we assume that it is, you know, mm. but you kind of, if you have stage one and it doesn't get treated, it goes to stage two, stage three, stage four. But um, while we've got kind of we don't have strong evidence to suggest that that happens you know to most people um at this stage you know and also is stage one endometriosis for example is it the same as stage four deep or deep infiltrating endometriosis mm. you know is it the same disease that's just mm. got worse or is it actually a, a kind of a separate type of of endometriosis and so there's amazing work which is going on with um Brett McKinnon and Grant Montgomery and, and Professor Carolyn, Carolyn Gargett and others who are looking at, you know, the genetics and the phenotypes um, of this. Mm. And they're much smarter than I am and I don't really understand all of that. Um, but they, you know, that their work is crucial to figure out, you know, uh, is it the same disease? How should we be treating it? Okay. Um, in terms of diagnosis, I think there's really is some encouraging progression. Um, certain types of ultrasound done by skilled, you know, correctly trained operators definitely can, you know, um, it's pretty clear now that they can visualize certain types of endometriosis, at least stage okay. three and four. Yeah. Um, and there's some work which has been done, you know, and it seems promising that they may even be able to image, you know, more mild or superficial endometriosis. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's some work being done as well to combine ultrasound and other kind of imaging with machine learning okay. you know to help improve that and so there's a study uh, there's a, an image endo study which is you know i think um again funded by the government 
quite a quite a few million dollars, um, you know, which is working on looking at how we can improve this. So I think non-invasive diagnosis is obviously, you know, the kind of holy grail. And, yeah, yeah, ideal. Um, you know, a saliva test or a blood test would yeah. be even better than, yeah, you know, an ultrasound. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but at the moment, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, works going on in this area and a lot of promising early results but so far to my knowledge they it never quite we've never found one where you know in the general population it actually works yeah um, yeah so but I think so at the moment probably the most promising is looking at kind of improvements in ultrasound and other imaging okay. yeah um, and they can also provide um, you know, they can be, at the moment, I'd say they can be used to rule in endometriosis. So if there's, if there's positive findings on imaging, we can say it's very likely you have endometriosis, but they shouldn't be used to rule out endometriosis. Yeah, yes, okay. Yeah. So I think that's really crucial. You know, just because you have a negative imaging finding doesn't mean you don't have endometriosis. Mm, that's true, um, isn't it? Yeah. But those scans can also be used to help surgeons and patients make decisions on what they want to do, um, better prepare for surgery, because obviously a lot of the time the surgeon, when they go in for the, the, the treatment, they don't necessarily know what it's going to look like until yeah. they go in. And so, you know, you might have someone who has relatively mild, you know, symptoms, but then they go in and they find that it's actually, you know, very uh, extensive endometriosis and, you know, there's bowel involvement um, mm. and, you know, then, you know, what do you do, you know, because you kind of need a, a colorectal surgeon then and yeah. they're probably not just it's hanging out, you know, yeah. um, in the operating theatre. So yeah. anything we can do to make sure each surgery is, um, you know, is the most optimal type of the most optimal surgery, yes. I think, is so really important because we do know the fewer surgeries, the better the outcome. Yeah, 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 for sure. And Mike, are you exploring research on adenomyosis and acupuncture? So that's a really good question. I'm not, um, and the reason for that has been up until recently. I think adenomyosis has been endometriosis is kind of um, even more marginalised cousin, um, and because adenomyosis is is not you know it's a different diagnosis process um it's it makes it difficult to include those people in the same study despite yeah. the fact that i think you know well over i can't remember the statistic off the top of my head i want to say 48 percent but i could be wrong um of those with endometriosis also have adenomyosis so yeah. you know i it's it is also difficult because it's a completely different disease um, mm. even though it, it's kind of endometriosis's evil cousin. Um, mm. But it is, it's, it's diff, you know, it is different. Um, and so, you know, one of the things is, you know, will the treatment for endometriosis map onto adenomyosis? Yeah. Um, for pharmaceuticals, probably not, but for acupuncture, possibly. Mm. Um, but we haven't had any funding for that. Um, but okay. I think absolutely, you know, people with adenomyosis are currently probably very much overlooked yeah. Um, and we need, to, definitely. we need to identify that. Yeah, we see that in clinic a lot. Mm. Yeah, it's really, um, and a part of that has just been also, you know, um, there's only so many hours in the day, unfortunately, for researchers as well, you know, so we have to, you know, we, we can't do everything, unfortunately. And I think that, you know, it'd be great to see a team of, of people, you know, who've got specific expertise in adenomyosis start to, you know, engage in more research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And Mike, you touched on medicinal cannabis prep just before. Um, with THC and CBD oil, um, what yeah. research are you finding for a therapeutic dose for pain relief? And is the THC aspect needed? Yeah, so we, again, there's very, very little research out there. Okay. Um, you know, so we do find that it seems like CBD alone is effective for pain um, and it's probably seems to be quite effective for gastrointestinal issues, you know. So ah, often, okay. Often people with endo, you know, we'll, we'll talk about endo belly, yeah. um, the, the severe bloating, um, and it seems like an oral oil, um, you know, seems to be more effective for those symptoms, which does make sense, you know, considering it's moving through the, the GI tract. Mm. Um, but for actual pain, I think for most people, some THC probably is going to be necessary. Okay. Um, and I, that's what we, you know, uh, Justin and I published a paper on this last year, and it does seem like, especially for inhaled cannabis, okay. um, THC is needed to um, kind of catalyze that that pain relieving effect. And CBD and THC act through incredibly different ways in the body. Oh, so okay. um, it, uh, CBD doesn't actually act by the cannabinoid receptors at all. Um, so it doesn't bind to those, whereas THC does. So they're quite different. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, different kind of pharmacological mechanisms right so with um the down like the downside say for example with the thc is are you doing some research there with how um that would affect someone's quality of life with working and you know day to day yeah so that's where i'm really interested in these um novel delivery methods because i think there is ways that we could deliver um Kind of THC uh, or you know CBD or a combination of both, and reduce the kind of um, psychoactive impairment, which yeah. is obviously what we're in. So ways to do that include things like um, uh, transvaginal or transrectal absorption. Oh, okay. um, interesting. So the THC, the delta nine THC, when it's absorbed that way, only about fifty percent of it gets converted into the psychoactive form. Oh right. Um, Would so that be it's much Sorry, Mike, would that be via pessary? Yeah, so pessaries, suppositories. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's, that's cool. I think, yeah, really a way cool. yeah. that could be, um, you know, this is an area that we're really looking into is how we might, um, you know, develop some a delivery method like this and, and would it work as well, you know. Mm. And also I think the important thing to think of with medicinal cannabis is it's not, it's a, you know, it's a bit like saying, um, you know, we shouldn't think of it as a one size fits all, you know? So um, it's like saying, you know, you're, well, you took one pill, you can't take another, you know? Mm. So there is, um, you know, so if we're thinking of, you know, an oral, um, you know, medicinal cannabis, that might be great in the evening, you know, it takes yeah. about 60 to 90 minutes to come on. It can last about six hours or so, um, you know? So if you're having pain, which is preventing you from sleeping, you know, then taking, um, a, a, you know, a THC containing medicinal cannabis oil um, before bed might be fantastic. You know, by the time you wake up the next morning, the psychoactive or the impairment has gone. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But if you are having, um, you know, a breakthrough pain flare during the day, probably that's not going to cut it because it takes 90 minutes to, to come on, you know, and yeah. it doesn't really usually tend to peak um, until, you know, a couple of hours sometimes. So, you might want to then take inhaled vaporized cannabis because that generally tends to kick in between about 
you know, anything from kind of three to five minutes, you might find some some changes, and then it lasts a lot less. Okay. Um, uh, and it's also easier to dose, obviously, because, you know, you can take an inhalation, you can wait, you know, five or 10 minutes, and you might say, mm, it hasn't quite removed my pain, I'll do another inhalation, I'll wait another five to 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the oil, obviously, once you've taken it, uh, if you've taken too little or too much, um, very hard to kind of titrate that. Um, And so, you know, we might see medicinal cannabis in the future where, you know, during the day you might take a CBD oil, um, you know, to help with your your bloating, for example, it might reduce your pain. Uh, It might not be as as effective as something which contains THC, but, you know, you can obviously go to work, uh, you can drive, and then, you know, in the evening you get home, if you suddenly, you know, you're watching TV or something, you have this pain flare, you can get your vaporizer and you can you know, use a THC containing product to manage it. So I think it's, um, it's about, you know, finding different solutions for, you know, people's different symptoms. And, and again, you know, some people might not enjoy the psychoactive effects. So they mm. might say, you know, I'm just going to stick with CBD. Um, so I think it's, you know, we need to provide options for people. Yeah, That's great. Probably- yeah. And we see it so often in the clinic, young women who experience such severe endo symptoms are relying on opioids mm. to get through their day. So it's a great alternative if the research comes out that it is beneficial for women yeah. to take CBD oil or if needed, THC. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's really the driving force for us is that, you know, opioids are actually not recommended for chronic pain mm. um, and they're not actually you know, the, the research suggests that, you know, they, they shouldn't be used for endometriosis. But despite this, we know that at least in America, um, people with endometriosis have, are four times more likely to have an opioid prescription yeah. than those without. Yeah. Um, it's often combined with benzodiazepines as well. You know, mm. both of those are, you know, they they are not exactly side effect free. They, they you know, also do have some addictive yeah. and, um, you know, properties and, you know, are liable for abuse as well. So, mm. You know, it's a it's a very it's difficult because these people with endometriosis are put in a horrible position yeah, where are. you know they you know they you know they can either be in terrible pain or they can take opioids, which might help. Mm. Um, you know, so they're they're put in this horrible position. That's why we need to provide. That's why you know effective treatment, whether it's surgery, whether it's medicinal cannabis, what, whatever it is, is so vital because you know, it's a it's an impossible position to be stuck in, yeah. you know, either be in horrendous pain or, you know, um, you know, potentially have issues with, you know, um, opioid uh, yeah, you know, addiction. So. Yeah, it does seem like now that there is a shift. Yes, of course, hopefully in the future finding a cure, but it is really that focus on management now and, and you know, supporting people who do suffer from endo with their quality of life. And yeah, absolutely. And look, them. even if we find a cure tomorrow, you know, we need to be realistic and think, okay, if it's a, if it's a drug cure, it's probably going to take four or five years to go through trials and yeah. get on the market. So we still need to be thinking about how can we improve people's quality of life today yeah uh, you know so we need yeah. to you know and that's why you know there's m- multiple researchers doing multiple different things you know yeah. some of us are focusing on management some on diagnosis some on you know so I think that's you know we all have our role to play most definitely hmm. and Mike to finish off today if you could give one piece of advice to our patients and listeners out there with endometriosis what would it be so I think it would be find a healthcare team 
that supports you. Yeah. Um, you know, what we hear so often is, you know, people feel dismissed um, and they ha also have this burden of being their own healthcare manager on top of, you know, the fatigue and pain of endometriosis. So, you know, finding, um, you know, a multidisciplinary clinic or whatever, you know, works for you where you can get the, the treatment and management that you need um, ideally coordinated as best you can somewhere centrally, you know, I think is a huge bonus for many people. You know, if you need a dietitian, then, you know, they can re refer you to a dietitian. If you want acupuncture, they can, you know, they might have an acupuncturist on site or they might refer you to someone. You know, if you want surgery, they have the right trained, you know, high volume endometriosis expert surgeons. You know, so I think it's, um, it's having someone to help you manage that because unfortunately endometriosis is such a complex disease for most people there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer you know some people respond so well to acupuncture others don't do it doesn't help them at all you know some people find that changing their diet makes a huge difference mm. others find it doesn't do anything for them you know so i think unfortunately it's a lot of it is just trial and, error. and you know you need someone to help you you know manage manage that as well yes yeah, yeah. definitely Thank you so much for your time this morning, Mike. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. No problem. My pleasure. It was lovely to chat. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe and review. This podcast is intended as generalised health information only and was relevant at the time of recording. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or as a substitute for treatment from a medically trained practitioner. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions.